All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jay Nickel, and we are here with Nick Marciando, who has been shooting film and other content for BC Backcountry, and I'm kind of not sure who else, but maybe we'll get into that. Basically, what happened was, full transparency, I, I never really heard of Nick, didn't really know anything about Nick. And then uh, BC Backcountry, I know who Dustin is. We've texted a couple times. He's supposed to have come on the podcast, but he's a busy guy. I'm sure it'll happen. Um, BC Backcountry started releasing content this year. And I knew Connor had done some content for him before and some other dudes who were all legit. And like, I started watching this content and I'm like, this is really good, man. Like there's good and then there's good. And I'm like, this is really good. And then your name was kind of all over everything. And I thought to myself a few months ago, what was the first stuff you guys started dropping? Was it back in October or November? Was it later? Uh, from this season or just in general? Yeah, from this season, I think. Because that's what have been the first time I think you were on my... I've maybe seen your name around from previous seasons, but I think this season is the first time Like I really... I'm terrible at mm-hmm. watching other people's content, but this yeah, one... Yeah, no, it would have been November of, of this year. Okay. Um, is kind of when we started rolling with that. Yeah. So that's when I would have seen the first stuff. And if you haven't checked it out, where's the best place? Is the BC Backcountry and Beyond YouTube channel? Yeah, on YouTube, um, Backcountry BC and Beyond or Instagram, same same handle. Okay. Um, it's probably the best way to check it out. And I will say, Dustin, and I don't know whose idea this was, if this is a Dustin's mm-hmm. thing, but like his idea of treating his outfit as like a secondary content generation machine. And I'm sure there's several like side benefits of marketing and, you know, Mm -hmm. added, you know, all those clients now have those films for life. Like there's numerous benefits to do that, but I got to give him and whoever else was the creative kind of force behind that. Like just brilliant, man, because I don't think enough people, I I, I think more people need to get up to speed with like, that's kind of how things need to be done in this generation. And just before we even get into it, like, I just think you guys knocked it out of the fucking park, man. Like really, really good job. Yeah. I think it's uh, a pretty important thing. Um, especially in today's world. Like, I I mean, if you look at a lot of the, and it's a tough thing because I think a lot of outfitters are doing fine right now. Right. Like they don't need to, they don't need to branch out into content creation or marketing or social media or anything like that. Um, but I think we are getting to the point in the world where people that are doing that are going to be quite a ways ahead of those who aren't. Um, and so it's definitely been a, a pretty cool project to be a part of. And, and, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty important in today's world for sure. Yeah, man. And I think it's about, so I'm in business strategy as a career. And I think the idea of like points of differentiation and competitive advantage And yeah, everybody, if you've got a really unique outfit or some really unique territory or some really unique tags, you're probably never going to have problems booking guys. But when you have the ability to offer not only a truly unique experience, but then level it up with all these other things that could be content generation, it could be the type of accommodation, it could be the quality of your guides. Like there's all different areas where you can level up. And I think when you're looking at it as a more cohesive ecosystem like that and and an entire... Mm -hmm experience. Like, I think those are the guys and I got to give it to Dustin. Cause I've heard enough stories about Dustin, like through people who like the dude is driven and clearly has like a, a like a, a strong vision for what mm-hmm. he wanted to create and how he wanted to get there. But yeah, he's pretty, uh, he's pretty 
entrepreneurial business driven for sure. It's uh, like you're talking about trying to get them on the podcast, even for an hour is challenging to nail them down. Yeah. A hundred percent. So let's back up and talk about you a little bit, and then we'll kind of work our way up to where you are mm-hmm. now and the creating of the content for Backcountry, BC and beyond. Um, which I don't know if we've actually said, but that's also the name of Dustin's outfitting company. So if you were interested in booking a hunt or something, that's also the mm-hmm. Instagram page that you, like you mentioned, that was the Instagram page, but it's not yeah. just their media outlet. That's also the name of the outfit itself. If anybody out there is looking for them. Mm-hmm. So what, what's your background? You know, just before we, we hit record, you're originally from South Dakota, but like strong hunting family or that came in later. What's the deal? Yeah. I mean, I grew up in South Dakota, um, in the States and I had a, I wouldn't say like a super strong hunting family. My dad bird hunted, my grandpa grew up hunting. Um, and that's definitely how I was introduced to it, but it wasn't like this, like all consuming thing that we did. It was kind of, you know, weekend warrior kind of thing. Um, and mostly bird hunting and then kind of that's big in the Dakotas, right? Oh yeah. Like Like real big. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's like the biggest thing thing there for sure um and then kind of as i got older transitioned to deer hunting and then from there like all my buddies were bow hunting and you know uh south dakota has some pretty good opportunities for over-the-counter archery uh hunts yep so we kind of did that um and then the bow hunting with a bow meant i got a hunt from basically august 1st to december 31st okay um, and so that was like a no brainer over the two week rifle season. Um, so I started doing that and, you know, I was in high school at the time and this will kind of lead into to why I do what I do now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I was in high school at the time, hated high school. I just, I was, I was pretty book smart, but just hated, hated the whole concept of, you know, having to listen to teachers and yeah. learn subjects that I just hated. Um, so in my senior year of high school, trying to kind of trying to figure out what I want to do. Um, I'm a pretty young guy right now. I'm still 23. Um, and I was in my senior year of high school and I remember like just deciding that I was done with the whole school thing. Um, and so I kind of decided I was probably going to go to college, um, but didn't want to right out of the gate. So I, I started looking at doing a gap year, so taking a year off from high school before I went to college. Um, and so I was doing that, trying to figure that out. Um, and I didn't want to just, you know, take a gap year and go screw off for, for a year and and not really get anything done. Um, so I did a, um, EMT course, like kind of a remote EMT course, kind of trying to expand, um, the things I was interested in and that I knew about and maybe see if I was interested in the medical field. So I did that. And then my plan after that was i kind of figured out that I could go to New Zealand and have basically unlimited hunting and fishing, um, opportunities there. They have a pretty, um, liberal hunting regulations in terms of tags and who can get tags and whether you need an outfit or a guide. So basically found this like Mecca where you could go over there. Um, it's pretty like backpacker friendly for people that, um, you know, are, are just there backpacking. There's hostels all over the place. There's like these used hatchback cars that people can just buy and and uh, live out of. So my game plan was I was going to go over there for you know five months or so. Like took all this money that I'd saved from working summer jobs and 
and everything else. And instead of going to college, <laughs> I was going to take a year and kind of, you know, do something that I was pretty excited about. Um, so I went to New Zealand. Um, when I got there, I bought like this beater uh, Mitsubishi hatch, hatchback car. And I brought my bow, fly rods, and just like hunting gear. I love this, man. I love this. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> and, uh, and like two weeks in, my car's transmission like blew up. <sighs> and so I was like scrambling, trying to figure that out. Found another car, like all my like disposable income to do like cool things while I was there was just gone. So then I just spent probably the next four months while I was there living out of my car, backpacking, fly fishing, doing a lot of like I was backpack bow hunting as much as I could. Um, and then that's where I, I grew up in South Dakota. So never really had any mountain hunting experience. Right. And then the mountains there are pretty unforgiving. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a sheep hunt or goat hunt like you'd have in Northern BC, uh, maybe with even more rain. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I kind of really got thrown into the ringer there. Had no idea what I was doing. Um, had done like a backpack elk hunt before that. And then here I was in New Zealand doing these like crazy, you know, 10 day backpack hunts. Um, and I learned What's a lot. What's your family thinking kinda... this whole time? Like you're just out to lunch or is it oh, like. I'm a lunatic. Yeah. <laughs> but supportive or think, worried? Yeah. I think uh, at first they're worried because it was like, you're not, you're not going to college. You're not doing yeah. like this traditional thing and i kind of had a, a game plan it wasn't like i was like i'll figure no, it, it sounds out like even there. for a young age you thought about this it might be a little bit crazy but yeah. it, was, it was like linear and there was a everything still was serving a purpose yeah i, I kind of thought of it as i needed to, I, I knew that if i went to college right out of high school it wasn't going to end well yeah. i just wasn't in a good mindset and i'm actually i feel pretty fortunate that I recognize that it's great self-awareness because man. pretty rare. A yeah. lot of people don't listen to that inner voice at that age. Yeah. I appreciate that. I think like, had I gone to college out of the gate, it would have just been this disaster. Like I would have hated it. I would have dropped out. I would have just tried to do something different. That would have like completely kind of thrown me off because to have like a failure like that at such a young age would probably be a pretty negative thing. Yep. Um, so I was like, yeah, I'm going to go and I'm going to do this thing. And I kind of had like this solid game plan, um, of how to make it happen. And so I think they kind of supported me in that, like in that decision, because okay. it was like, a, I was so confident in it as something that yes. I needed to do. Yes. And yeah, I, I think I appreciate that for sure. Cause it, they could have gone the other route of like, oh, yeah. this is a bad, this is a bad idea. What are you doing? And I think a little skepticism um, is a good thing. Like it's their job to yeah. like check your assumptions and be like, are you mm -hmm. sure about this? But then once yeah. you see somebody is committed being like, all right, if you're going to mm -hmm. do it, you know, we might as well get behind you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, and I mean, any 19 year old that says that that's something that they want to go to, I think anybody should yeah. question them in their, in their decision. But, um, yeah, no, I, I went and did that and, kind of there I realized um, that I I was going to try to build my life around spending as much time doing those things as possible. And whether that was um, being a guide or, um, you know, through digital media, I hadn't quite figured that out yet, but I was right. like, I, I love this so much. I want to figure out how to spend as much time doing it as possible. Um, so I came back and was kind of faced with this like decision of like, okay, what do I do? Um, and instead of kind of just taking this leap into trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I couldn't get to Canada at the time. 
um, to guide. And that's kind of where I wanted to guide. I didn't want to guide in the States. I wanted to do these like cool mountain hunts. Um, and so I kind of was faced with this, like, I need to do something in the meantime, that's going to fill this hole of, you know, being a productive member of society and like continuing to further the things I was doing. Um, so I decided to go to college, um, and I was going to school in Oregon for digital communications. Um, and I did that for a year while I was there, I did an internship in the marketing department of a hospital. Okay. Um, it was centered around video creation and, and, uh, producing videos for their, their marketing department. And I learned a lot there just in terms of like the technical aspects of, of shooting film. And then as well as just kind of how to set up a story and, and just the basis of that. Right. Um, and then as I was doing that, my, I kind of realized I probably didn't want to guide, um, because I had this like love for taking photos. I've kind of done it my whole life. I made ski videos with my buddies when I was younger. Um, and so doing things like that, I was like, well, maybe I could combine this like desire to be in wild places and, and do these and do and cool, see these cool things with, um, you know, my enjoyment of photography and then now video that I kind of found through this internship. Um, and so at that time I kind of started doing that and my business and and uh the things I was doing with that kind of outweighed the time that I was spending in school yep and so I kind of faced with this decision of do I continue to go to school or not and I kind of decided on I was going to do online school so I could focus on um you know kind of trying to grow the business that I was trying to create and then still continue that education and then probably two years ago I kind of got to the point where school was taking up more of my time than I wanted to. And just the work that I was doing was just getting to be too much. So I just kind of put the kibosh on that. I got an associate's degree at the end of that, which is kind of worthless (laughs) in today's day and age. Um, But I mean, at this point, I'm, I'm glad I kind of did that because it, you know, I, I continued to, to further what I was doing, but, um, you know, I, I think I got to the point where I was like, I'm going to school to do the thing that I'm doing right now. Right. So why not just go of, do this thing already? Yeah. Why, why not just go do this thing, commit to it and, and make it work and, and see what happens instead of like, I think there's a lot to be said for going to school if you're taking a more traditional career path. Yeah. Um, but I mean, like I've never had a client or anyone come up to me and be like, Hey, like we really want to hire you for this shoot, but what kind of school right. or education you have. It's just, yeah. yeah, it just doesn't, doesn't happen in this space. So. Um, no. And the funny yeah. thing is, I think even the indirect benefits of like, I can think of like networking and other side benefits, but given totally. the area you wanted to get into, I, you're probably not even going to get a whole lot of that in those types of programs and especially by doing it no. online. So then even, even that you have a tough time making. Oh, an yeah. Argument. yeah. If you're doing it online, like the whole yeah. connections thing is just kind of, out the window because you yeah. like I wasn't even doing Zoom classes. It was just all strictly online. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that kind of was gone with that. But okay, so yeah, we no, decide, I'm glad I did it. But ditch the school and commit 100 percent to the business. Yeah. Yeah. And that was kind of a, a scary thing to do because you know I'm still I was still at that point, I was 20 years old. Yeah. And to like I, I had done it before with the whole like not take a traditional path out of high school. And that was a leap, but to then jump into, okay, now I'm going to like be completely self-employed. 
no backstop of saying like, Hey, I'm in school. So, um, like you're just, a um, like a, a big leap into doing that. And, and I, not like a, a big background in it either. It's not like you work for somebody no. who's doing this for five years and had no. a portfolio and were known like this is really starting mm-hmm. from scratch almost in the yeah. hardest way possible. Oh yeah, it was it was definitely the hardest way possible. I think like I was pretty fortunate to quickly kind of find my groove into what I wanted to do and and doing work up north of Dustin and, and the companies that we work with up there. Um that kind of I think if had I not found that and not figured that out, it would have been a lot harder. because uh, there's I mean, there's so many talented people in this space doing right. the things that I do. It's it's pretty hard to stand out. Yeah. Um, and so I think finding that and kind of figuring out like, okay, um, there's this niche I can fill with the mountain hunting scene. Well, you don't live in Bozeman. Um, so that is step one. No, to stand <laughs> yeah. that, that's in your favor because they've got that area locked down. Oh yeah. Bozeman's <laughs> a tough place, man. It's just, everybody comes out of Bozeman. It's a great place. Yeah. It's yeah. I mean, yeah, I think but, it, like it's Mecca, but in the same breath, yeah, yeah, it would be tough to stand out there. So I'm interested in principle because like coming up with the idea or being inspired that this is what you want to do and then actually being mm-hmm. able to like network with somebody like Dustin and 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 figure out like you wouldn't even have known that guy. Like how how did you navigate that whole process of actually manifesting what you wanted to do into actual work? Yeah, I think out of the gate I so several years before that, I kind of went up north. My buddy is a guide in northern BC as well. Okay. Um, and I just kind of went up there with him and just like scouted for sheep for a couple of days. Um, just kind of went up. He was driving up. So I drove up, drove up with him and did that. Came back home. And that was kind of around the time where my gears were turning on like wanting to do this. Yep. And I thought like, man, there's, I think there's a real opportunity here to highlight things that outfitters do. Yes. And the haunts that they go on and then combine that with like the companies like Sitka and Yeti that have kind of driven forward this effort in the hunting industry to produce content and, and media that's um, kind of goes above and beyond like just the kill aspect yeah. of hunting. And so I thought there'd be a really cool opportunity to um, like combine those two worlds. And so I made this like giant list I think I still have it somewhere, but there's like 30 different outfitters on it in the North. And I was like, I'm just going to cold call an email. Dude, I love this. I love this I shit. Like, <laughs> yes. I was like, I'm going to cold call and email all of them. Yeah. And I was like, but like first we were like the top five that I would yeah, want to yeah. work with the most, either through um, the connection they have the industry, kind of what they're about. And I remember I had Dustin and, and at the time they were still kind of getting the ball rolling on, like he had done his leasing of tags and had really dude his story, which I like, know just like through a couple yeah. people, like what a gangster man! Like, yeah, leasing oh, yeah. tags and begging, borrowing, stealing, and getting clients and going over here yeah. and hunting those guys' tags and like that dude has oh, he's hustle. all over the place. Oh yeah, <laughs> and apparently, yeah. like I know legit legit dudes like four hundred sheep killing motherfuckers mm-hmm. and the things that they have said about the way that guy hunts and like what he brings mm-hmm. to the table, like extremely complimentary, like legitimate stud, yeah. no joke. Yeah. He's opened my eyes for sure. Yeah. Like I'll be on hunts and just like, I feel like I've grown and I haven't gotten to hunt for myself in three years. Right. Um, but wow. I feel like I've grown 
so much as a hunter just being around him and and the guys that that worked for him but yeah at the time like they were just getting the ball rolling he had just acquired cassier like two years before that yeah um which is the the main outfit that they're running now um and i kind of was like okay i love to work with him but obviously this is like a pipe dream right like yeah. i'm gonna go work with a black bear outfitter in, in southern alberta which is like there's nothing wrong with that but i was like i really want to do these cool mountain style hunts um and i remember i dm'd him this like big paragraph like hey dustin like this this is something that i want to do here's kind of like my ideas around it and i remember i was on a chairlift snowboarding and i got a dm back it's like hey actually we're like working on something similar right now love to talk to you about it um and it was like this okay like maybe this is something that yeah. is feasible now. Yeah. Um, so kind of talked with him about that. And then the first year we just kind of rolled into it. Um, and we really didn't have a plan or an idea of what it would look like. And so I think the content that came out of that first year was good, but it was still along those lines. Like I feel like looking back on it, if I were to rewatch the videos, it's like, Oh man, there's like, there's like no plan here yeah. of how this should go or how we wanted it to go. Um, and then the following year was COVID. Yeah. And so that year I, I couldn't come up and that really like stirred this desire in me to like, okay, I'm going to make, I'm going to make sure so that in the future I, I can be up there and do the things that I want to do. And I was, I was fully committed in like kind of the, the business that I'd chosen to be in and start and, and everything else. And so I remember kind of July of the COVID year when it was like, okay, I'm not be able to go up north i'm not going to get to do the things that i want to do this year i kind of started transitioning to okay how can i in the future make sure that that doesn't happen um so i kind of went through the immigration kind of uh just the whole immigration system yep um and so in july of 2020 i started figuring out how i could get up here so um from then to April of last year, I finally got the green light and I'm up here on a work visa now and, and working towards living here full time. So, um, yeah. Badass. Kind man. of a whirlwind. <laughs> the clarity of vision at your age, like what are your parents like? Like where does that, you got any other siblings? Like this, this stands out to me. This is not typical. Like there's, there's, there's definitely other individuals who <clears throat> kind of know what they want to do at a, at a young age, but you took some serious risks and without mm-hmm. uh, like reinforcement or confidence based on experience, you took some pretty big steps. Where do you think you got that confidence and drive from? I think most of it was like, I've, I've pretty, I have a family that never questioned my decisions it was more of like if this like it it might be crazy but if this is the thing that you think is a good idea for you then by all means go do it yep um so that kind of gave me this like I, I think there's a lot that goes on with people especially in today's world like younger kids that feel this like intense pressure from the family they have or the kind of the role models in their life of like you need to take this path like this is what you have to do and even if that isn't what they have to do, there's just like overhanging pressure. Like this is the direction you have to go. And so they don't kind of pursue the things that are important to them or that they actually want to. And then they end up doing a desk job that they're not super happy with. Yep. And 
again, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I think you're seeing it more and more where younger kids are like realizing that the internet exists and that they can make money making TikToks or, yeah. or starting a podcast or whatever it is. Like the, the opportunity to do those things now is so big. Yes. And I think at the time I just kind of realized that like the metaphorical fork in the road, like I could go this direction and I could go to college and I could get a degree in marketing and go work at a marketing firm and wherever. Um, or I could go into medicine or I could do all these things, but it was this like, what am I going to be happy with at the end of the day? And what's going to be the thing that can like, I wake up in the morning, I'm like, okay, what are we doing today that I'm excited about? And I kind of wanted to do that. I didn't want to take a path that was probably the safer path. And that would more, it's more likely for it to work out for sure. Like I go to college and, and get a degree and the four-year degree and graduate with that and then go get a job. And then, you know, everything happens after that. And it's, it's a more traditional path and it's a safer path, but I kind of quickly realized, especially in high school, I realized that that was something that I didn't want to do. And I was just going to, even if it was uncomfortable at times, I was going to try to figure out what I could do to make sure that I didn't have regrets looking back on kind of the decisions I made. Yeah. And that drove me from a young age to make sure that, you know, even if I was like, Oh, I don't think this is going to work. Um, being able to try it anyway, push on through that because yeah. I knew that I would have more regrets later on if I just gave up and, and try to do something else. That's badass, so. man. Okay, I, I want to take a moment and talk about storytelling because this is something you brought up earlier and it's probably my biggest frustration in mm -hmm. outdoor media because I think it's almost like an afterthought of, for, for some individuals. Um, I kind of had an epiphany myself. I was solo on an elk hunt, <clears throat> Northern Rockies, not kind of too far from where you spend most of your time. <clears throat> and... Uh, I was starting to get to that point in the hunt where I was going to have, I was being forced to admit myself that I might be going home empty handed. It was like day mm -hmm. eight or nine of 11 or something like that. And, uh, I had this epiphany because like the only way you can really build followers reliably is by stacking bodies. Like that, I, I hate to say it, but like that tends to be what drives views and engagement on social media platforms. Like you just got to look at somebody's grid and be like, go look at how many likes the big racks have and go many, how many likes yeah. the steaming cup of coffee on the rock has like it, like it is not even a comparison, but I, but, I, but I knew because I live in BC, it's not the type of place where you can reliably go stack a bunch of bodies. Like we have a lot of hunting opportunity, but that doesn't mean yeah. you're going to kill a lot of shit. It means I, I can buy a bunch of tags and spend a lot of time hunting, but I'm still really lucky to take one or two things home a year. And I realized with the things I, that really drove me and that I was passionate about, it was like the challenge and the adventure for me. And I'd realized yeah. that even on some of my unsuccessful hunts, people really seem to like watching me beat the shit out of myself. Like that seemed to be like a close second to killing something. If you're not going to kill something, killing yourself can be equally as entertaining. And I realized that like those were the stories I wanted to tell because I felt like I had a certain degree of control over that narrative. Like I can take a, 
I can plan a seven-day solo backcountry goat hunt in the middle of February. And I know for a fact, as long as I just keep the camera rolling, it's going to be interesting. Like weird shit is yeah. going to happen and there's going to be a story at the end of the day. I'm a big, I love Gary V's whole like document, don't create because especially as a solo filmer, I'm very limited in how much control I have over even how I tell the story. Cause I, uh, cause I'm, I, there's just a lot of like physical limitations, but I realized that for me, the story I wanted to tell was like personal challenge and adventure in extreme struggle. And however, I was going to be able to get that done. I'd like to hear like what your evolution in storytelling and how you approach it because, and I might be overthinking the shit out of this, but there really seems to be like a micro and a macro or a plot and a subplot going on over the course of the whole season. Like, I feel like we have these big, this big backcountry BC and beyond arc. And then we have like these mini arcs in each of the little series that come out and the whole thing is tied together. And I'd love to hear, <laughs> is that intentional? Is that something you guys think about before the season starts? Is that more reactionary? Like we have a vague idea and then we just respond. How do you think about that and approach that? I think it's, it's like an interesting thing because I, I'm pretty fortunate with the people that are out there. Um, I've kind of always been driven by the not stacking bodies yeah. side of the hunting space. Like I've, that hasn't, I've never really looked at someone and been like, Oh, that person's cool. Or that person's really awesome because they kill a bunch of shit. Like that's never been my motivation for thinking that content that I saw in the hunting space was rad. I just, it's just kind of not the, what drives me or, or what I get excited about. And I think Dustin's done an incredible job of piecing together people up there that are just the greatest people Dude, the ever. Characters you couldn't oh, yeah. make up people like <laughs> no. Dan and no. Tannis and Doran. Oh, it's just like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah, like Doran and Tannis on their own. It's like, crazy. Should have their own their own show. Own like, show. just yeah. I would watch those guys every day. Like, they're insane, but like lovably insane. Yeah, like I kind of quickly realized that. Um, you know, there there's most outfitters in the North are incredibly good at what they do. Right. They've dialed, they've been there for years. All their guides know exactly what to do and their success rates are awesome. It's like, how can you differentiate one outfit from another? And it was like, what about all these cool, incredible people that right. make it up? Cause that was kind of the goal is like, let's tell an overarching story of a season from start to finish. Right. But each hunt has its respective guides and what's kind of cool about those guides and what, what can we do to highlight that? And so it was obviously like Dustin's trying to sell hunts. Yeah. I'm trying to make cool content. So there is like this things need to align on that front. Yep. Um, like at the end of the day, the videos that we put out are to um, drive people to be like, I want to go hunting with them. But on my side, it's like, I want to make things that grow our following and that get people engaged with what we're doing. And so it's just kind of worked well where the guides are, and don't get me wrong, like I've had my fair share of like butting heads with the guides because like what you're talking about is something that I struggle with. I like to have control over what I'm doing. Yeah. And so the hunt, creating content in the hunting space is 
horrific for that. Right. Like you just have no control None. because, and then when I'm coupling that with being on a hunt with clients that are there to hunt and they pay a lot of money to hunt. And sometimes they don't care whether I get the shot or not. Yep. And so like I've, I have video after video, especially this season of like me trying to push that envelope a little bit, yep. right? Like seeing what I can get away with, what I can um, do to have some control over the situation. And that's paid off with a lot of awesome shots and, and getting things around a certain aspect of the hunt that I wouldn't have otherwise, but it also comes with Doran flipping me off <laughs> when I'm filming or like yelling at me for, um, you know, asking the wrong question at the wrong time, like things like that definitely happen. But I feel like it's kind of something that I've just accepted. Like, yeah, yeah I'm going to do things that are going to, um, you know, rub door in the wrong way every once in a while. And I don't mean to rag on him. I just have a lot of, of footage of him getting mad at me, but I love the guy. And, uh, he's, he's just the greatest person ever to, to be around in film and Tannis too. Um, but yeah, like, I think that's one of the biggest things that I've tried to push for in my own work is trying to get some of that control back. Right. Um, because at the end of the day to like create polished quality work, you you kind of need some level of control, right? Yeah. Um, and some level of plan. Like if I were just go out there and be like, okay, like I'm filming this hunt and I'll just see what I get. That happens a lot. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I think being super intentional about what you're getting, why you're getting it and how that's going to all piece together at the end is super important. And I try to like shoot for the edit is what I'm thinking in my head of like, so I'm, I've heard it described as like a hamster wheel where you're, you're constantly on this hamster wheel trying to tie everything together. Right. Right. And so I'm like constantly thinking in my head of like, how can I shoot this? What shots do I need to get in this situation that I'll tie yes, this together? Yes. And so I drive the guide guides nuts. Yeah. So I'm like, Hey, I need you to say this. Yeah. Or I need, I need something that's going to link this together. Like, Oh, I just gave something to you 15 minutes ago. Yeah. I'm like, I know, but I'm thinking in my head and half of it gets thrown out or 90% of it gets thrown yeah. out. Um, but I think trying to introduce some level of control back to that has been valuable for me and, and the work that I've created. Um, and yeah, I think there's definitely intention there, but there's also like, I can't predict everything that's going to happen. Um, hundred percent, man. And when you have 40 horses and 18 guides and airplanes going back and forth and yeah. 60 clients in a season, there's a lot that yeah. I just have no control over. So trying to find that control and, and figuring out what I can get away with has been, um, pretty important for that. Yeah. See, it's so hilarious, man. The things you're describing, I think that's where I'm at with my own evolution as a filmmaker. Like when I first started doing it, just the fact that I like solo filmed in crazy places was almost enough to get me by, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, well, that's crazy that not only did you go in there alone, you carried all your own gear and filmed yourself. So it almost bought me a little leeway with the audience. And then, and I did come to realize there, I can, I can, I can level this up. Like the, I'm, I'm still, even though I can't control the storyline completely, I could be almost identifying like overarching themes that I want this particular mm -hmm. story to have and then directing the content and getting shots. And like you're saying, in my mind, I call things like certain types of footage, transitional footage. Cause one of my big failures at the beginning is like, I would be a place and I would say a thing. And then like, I don't really think about it again. And then shit, now I'm someplace else. And I didn't transport the audience 
from one place to another. And then I got to do this talking head thing where oh, I just walked three miles and it's like, it's so weak. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. I just did it. Why am I not showing them? And it took me so long to realize like there's, you can't have too much footage. Like I almost feel like I need to be filming like every three to five minutes, something and like you're saying, 90% of it, but you never know it's that one or two shots of like that one creek crossing where you've got the two peaks and it like, it's just enough of a visual tie to bring like the one scene in together with the other scene. But that's where I, I, I've got this two week solo sheep hunt coming up the first two weeks of August. And I'm really putting a lot of pressure on myself because I do have like, it's a fly in hunt. So I know how I'm going in. I know how I'm coming out. I know how long I'm going to be there. I'm taking a raft with me. So like that is a known. And like, I'm really trying to force myself to apply a bit more of that preemptive kind of intentional storytelling to it. Cause I do think watching back some of my own stuff, like it's okay. It's good. I like it, but there's definitely room for improvement. And that was what some of the stuff that inspired me about the stuff you guys were doing. I was like, pretty, I, I hate to say I'm arrogant. Like most people should I watch? And I'm like, this is not that your, your guys shit. I'm like, that's better than my shit. <laughs> this is, <laughs> I got clearly I've got some room for improvement because these guys, because you still had the, like people seem to go one of two ways. It's either hyper overproduced and they have the story and they have the like acts. And you can tell that somebody who knows what they're doing is behind it. But because it's so polished, I'm like, that doesn't resonate with me. Or you have like the DIY amateur guys that like, I love your heart and I love your passion, but your production value is so low. I'm just, I can't watch your shit. And finding that stuff that's in the sweet spot that has like the mechanical structure of good story with the high production value while maintaining the kind of artistic integrity and the integrity of what we love, the discipline of being an outdoorsman and hunting and like, that's that magic spot in the middle, um, that I think you're, you guys are doing particularly well. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. I think like the whole show don't tell thing you kind of briefly touched on that is right. super important. And it's something that like you see it in, I, I like a big movie guy. Like I love movies. Yeah. And one of the biggest thing you see in movies is they, they show you something Yeah, and they're not, like they're not relying on the characters to guide you through this story. Right. It's right. this, it's this very serious, like we're going to, we're going to show our audience the story and the characters and what they say is that story, but it's just to guide that along. Right. And I think that's like the biggest thing that I've tried to think about is obviously I need some input from people to make it what it is, but maybe like you have a situation where you have like two people talking about what they're going to do and film them talking to each other about what they're going to do naturally instead of like facing the camera. And I guilty of this. Like I do it constantly because sometimes you can't get those natural yep, interactions, for sure, but for sure. like instead of having someone like, Hey, I'm Dustin. And today we're in the Northwest territories yes. and today we're going sheep hunting. Like you can, you, you don't need that. Yeah. Really, in my opinion, like, okay, there's Dustin Cash. They're getting in an airplane. Okay, where are they going? Oh, this looks like the Northwest Territories. Oh, there's a helicopter and it says Canal Outfitters. Okay, they are in the Northwest Territories. Yeah. Hey, like, we just landed. We're hunting doll sheep. I'm really excited about this. Like, that to me does so much more when you're watching it than like this long, um, drawn out explanation of where you're at. Yes. And that coupled with, 
like I'm a pretty critical person of myself and the work that I do. So like even the content that we're putting out this year that I'm like really excited about and I think is awesome. I look at it and I'm like, oh man, like we could do so much better. <laughs> and so that, that kind of just continues to make me want to do better and, and make it better than it is. Um, and I think that kind of, you know, and the guides, like they say that I'm a pain in their ass, but I know that they yeah like to look at it and like Doran, do. Doran's like the most difficult person to film sometimes, but he also is like the best person to film. And then afterwards he sees it and he's like, oh man, I'm so glad that you got that. And it's there for life. He's, like I have a six year old yeah. daughter, man. And I've almost died because the amount of camera gear I'm trying to carry but like I, I would die for that. Like I have created like a legacy and when she grows yeah. up and like understands what it is that dad goes and does when he's not at home. And my, it originally started for me because I would do these backcountry adventures and I would come back and I used to do really remote forestry work for like 15 years of my life. So I'm used to like going to camp, not really seeing many people and coming back to society. And when you come back to society, especially after solo backcountry adventures, there's almost like this like uh, like reacclimation period where I even have problems talking to people. Like it weirds me out and it, I, I feel really like claustrophobic. Yeah. And I feel like we're yeah. operating in different times. There's this uh, sci-fi author, William Gibson, who describes jet lag as like, when you travel, you actually separate from your soul a little bit. And then when you get where you're going, you got to wait for your soul to catch back up with you. And like, I like that. that's what I feel like when I come out of the back yeah. country, like I'm here, but like my soul isn't. And until it catches yeah. up with me in a few days. And so people would ask me to tell me these stories and I, I would end up telling like these really weak ass stories and I'm a good storyteller. I'd be like, yeah, I don't know. There was some mountains and I, I saw some things and crossed some creeks. Like I just, I felt like so incapable of conveying the intensity and the like, uh, the brightness of everything. Like I was just like, I don't know what to tell you. And then I was like, it was filmmaking that like, this is the only way I can do this. And I also tend to make really long films, like 40, 50, 60 million minute film is definitely not beneath me. Mm -hmm. And I think there's maybe room to criticize that. But sometimes what I'm trying to do is like drive home, like the monotony of it all. You know what I mean? Like you're going to watch me climb this mountain six fucking times. Cause I climbed the mountain six fucking times. And it's like, um, I think film is really the only way that you can convey like the true nature of, of everything. And like, yeah, that's stuff mm -hmm. that you piss off those guys as much as you want that. Like everybody's got a little bit of ego and you also make people look badass. So it's like, if they looked like whiny bitches, <laughs> yeah. that might be a different yeah. story, but like everybody comes out looking like really good. So. Well, yeah. it's hard for me too, because I like, there's, there's definitely a value to people that are like super emotion expressive. Right. Like they, they express their emotions, but like these guys, they spend so much time in that environment Yeah, that it's like 60 mile an hour winds, pouring rain, and we're wet because we just crossed a river and they're just like, oh yeah, this is great. Like, this is awesome. And it just, they're not, no one's phased, right? Yeah. And, and so like, as a filmmaker, I'm like, oh, I like really want you to tell me how bad this sucks right now. But to them, it's like, oh, this is another day in the park because I spend, they spend 90 days, you know, in the back country, not coming out. Um, and so to do that, it takes a special kind of person. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like I think I'm pretty grateful to be around those types of people and get to, to film them for sure. 
I think it rubs off in you as well. Like, it's funny. People think there's something special about spending time in the mountains when the weather's shitty. And like, I was a forestry engineer for 15 years and I mm -hmm. did it five days a week, 10 hours a day and got paid 25 bucks an hour to do it and like, didn't get a hero biscuit for it. So when it came to hunting, I was just like, oh, this is just what it is. Like, yeah. I just feel at home. And I think because I grew up working around like loggers and other dudes that like, you did not get a pat on the back for this. Like, this is just work. You no. get up and go do this every day. And if you can't whine or if you're going to whine, fuck off. Like, yeah. And I think that breeds a certain like temperament or, an, or a certain approach. You know what I mean? That, that when I, t when I do find people who don't have that background and have come into hunting later, they really kind of blow that. I don't want to say they blow it out of proportion, but it's definitely one of the hallmark parts about the trip for them because they just don't have a way to put it in context or, or perspective. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. I, I want to, I want to be respectful of your time, but I want to nerd out for a little bit first. Um, oh yeah. You're good. I'm good on time. Okay. So talk to me about gear. What are we, what are we running? Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm kind of looking at my camera table over there. Um, I generally run, so I'd started on Sony Okay. Um, and I do, I think gear is an interesting thing because people will say like, oh, gear doesn't matter. It's like, well, if gear doesn't matter, then like you wouldn't have your, you know, $7,000 camera lens yeah. set up. Like you'd shoot on a Sony a 6,000 and you'd call it. I good. shoot on a Sony a one. Um, so you're not, you yeah. don't need to preach to the choir. Like I very much <laughs> like gear. Yeah. Yeah. Like, but I also think like gear doesn't, if you don't have a good foundation and you don't understand the, the technical side of things and you don't have an artistic yeah. eye gear won't help you yes and it won't hurt you but if you know what you're doing gear will 100 help you because there's technical things that make up cameras that produce a better image um i think that's, so a, I think great, gear I think that's a great way to put it yeah like gear is important but if you're just starting out like all the professionals are going to tell you gear doesn't matter and i think it does but if you're just starting out, don't think that it's going to make you better. Yeah. It'll make your work better once you have a really solid grasp on everything. Yeah. 100%. Um, and it'll make your look work or work look more professional. But um, so I shoot right now on Canon mirrorless. So I have a Canon, I have two Canon R5s and R6. And that kind of is like what I do most of my work on. Okay. Um, like the, the new mirrorless bodies that have come out in the last three years are unbelievable bro um you're breaking like, my heart a little bit you switched out of sony but it's okay <laughs> we'll we'll let it slide the r5 is a nice camera i understand i uh i had some serious problems with sony's and their durability and i know tons yep. of people that haven't had that issue uh but i did i went through three mic inputs the first season i was up north Dude, Sony's. i've and, had the exact same mic input oh fixed man on my on my a7 III before i upgraded to the yeah and so to the a1 by, yeah. Like, and yeah. so that season I had, I went through all the mic inputs on my cameras yeah. last week. I couldn't record audio. And then on top of that, um, two different cameramen that were up there, both went through their mic inputs. Yeah. They were up there doing TV shows or for a private client or whatever, both their mic inputs went yeah. out. And I was just like, I'm not, yeah. I'm not doing this. I went through two lenses, like, and I, I, they've definitely gotten better. And I know people who have had zero issues. Like I know Foss shoots on, on yeah. Sony and, and Drake shoots on Sony and like all these people shoot on Sony, no issues. But for me, I just kind of, I just didn't want to deal with it. Yep. Um, and then at that time, 
when I was deciding that Canon kind of launched their new mirrorless line and they really knocked out of the park with, um, video especially, which is really important to me. Yeah. Um, and like, if we want to go really nerdy, I don't know how nerdy well, we want to go. Nerdy, get. Bro. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so there's a difference between, um, like your bit depth in video. Yeah. So there's eight bit, 10 bit, 12 bit, 16 bit. And when you're getting in like 12 bit and 16 bit, you're shooting raw yeah. video. And then, but previously, like you couldn't get 10 bit video unless you're shooting really a cinema camera. 100%. So you're shooting like a C200, you're shooting a red, you're shooting RE, whatever that was. It was hard to get a quality video with a lot of color data. And so when Canon did that, and right around the same time, Sony did their A7S3 yeah. and their A1 and everything else, 10 bit video has, I think it's like 64 times the color information or 32 Dude, times. The color correcting and the specific. color grading ease on my A1 compared, like it is mm -hmm. un, like how far you can push things. Oh man. Before, like it is, it's like, and this is where it's really interesting because like, just like you said, gear wouldn't matter. And if this was five years ago, I was just like putting some copy and paste LUT on shit and like some, you know, bogus color grade template I had downloaded. And I, I didn't understand color theory. So it wouldn't have mattered mm -hmm. to me if I had 10 bit color depth, but then when you do actually understand it and then you have access to that, like that much data mm -hmm. and it's like you're, you can just make your shit look so much nicer. Like, yeah, I think that's For one sure. of the biggest like even more so than frame rates, maybe like that really changed oh, yeah. the game as far as like the quality of the final product. And it goes back to what I was saying. Like if you're first starting out and you don't have the basics figured out, it's not going to help you. An overexposed image is still an overexposed image yes. and an underexposed image is still an underexposed image. And you can be shooting 16 bit raw out of a red yep. epic. And if your footage is overexposed too much, you're screwed and vice versa. Yep. 100%. Um, and so, but when you do understand it and you do hit, have a correct exposure, the ability that you have to manipulate the data in your images, and I'm talking about video when I'm talking about bit rates and, yeah. and color depth, um, because I think at this point, like the photo capabilities of cameras are unbelievable. And I don't really have like a favorite over like, I don't really have a brand favorite when it comes to the images that they're able to produce. Definitely like Sony's are better in low light than Canon's in my experience. And, Nikon's and some people like would argue the color profile of Canon's are a little bit nicer than, I almost yeah, think this is like a, definitely. like a top tier optics question. It's like, like a, it's like a personal, you like Swarrow or Zeiss and it's like, well, well yeah. it's a personal preference and probably what you were grew up around or what you people respect use, you mm -hmm. know, like, yeah, I think it's very much a personal preference conversation at that point. Yeah, so I, I shoot on mostly Canon mirrorless. I have about six months ago, I got a red Komodo, which is like a smaller, yep. um, like their smallest compact camera to do some more like narrative doc style work, yep. um, kind of to accompany everything else that I'm doing. But um, I mostly use that. I really like the Canons because I, I like, like I shoot in C-Log3 yep. um, and there's a, I feel like I can get closer to the image I want faster with C log than I can with S log, like out of the Sony. Yep. But that's probably just because I've spent more time working with C log. Well, and I got to be honest, um, I shoot, it's called exposed to the right. So I'm shooting everything mm -hmm. like two stops overexposed. 
mm-hmm. and then bringing it all the way back down. So I, I, I would probably agree pretty strongly with you because my in-camera image, now it's pretty quick for me because I've got like one LUT that like gets me real close and then I do my color grading from there. But what mm-hmm. I see in the camera is pretty far from what I'm, what my final image looks like in a Sony for me mm-hmm. to kind of get the biggest like um, mm-hmm. exposure range and 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 kind of color depth in my shots. So that that is one thing that's, and it can be challenging finding enough light to shoot like that as well. Yeah. But in my experience, that's the way for me to get the best end product with a Sony. Mm-hmm. There's there's so many different factors when you're talking about different camera systems um and it's just like yeah it you can go any direction i think if you're running um you know any of the big three or even four like sony nikon canon fuji like in this day and age and you're running like their top end mirrorless cameras and i mean mirrorless is the future yeah whether people like that or not um it really is and one thing i like about the canons and this is really a game changer for me is mirrorless means that before on a DSLR, you had a mirror that was flipping up and down when you take an image. Um, Now that mirror is gone, which allows them to make that flange distance, which is the distance from your lens mount to the sensor closer, which results in a sharper image, better autofocus, everything else. Um, But what that does is when you switch lenses, that sensor is exposed, right? Because there's no mirror there. And so you can get dust on that. You can get water on that. That's a problem. What I like about the Canon mirrorless bodies is there's a little shutter cover that when you turn your camera off, that cover drops down and then you can put your lens on without exposing that sensor to the elements. Yeah. And being in an environment up North where it is very unforgiving. And if I get a dust spot on my sensor and I'm usually not running a big monitor, it's hard for me to see that dust spot on there until I'm in post. And then there's and just the this one blob. Oh, every, it's the worst, man. They yeah, finally changed the that on the A1 too. They put the, they put the shutters yeah. on the A1. But I think that's the first camera they've done that on. And I was like, yeah. even in my A7 series, I'm like, this is insane. Oh, like, it's no brainer. Why is this thing open to the environment? Yeah. Like, this is crazy. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it still happens and you still get those spots, but it's yeah. so much, it's reduced so much with that. And that's super important to me. Yeah. Um, and then just lenses, I kind of go back and forth between primes and zoom lenses. Um, but I'm, I'm really becoming someone that likes primes a lot just yeah. because I'm able to have, you know, a wide aperture. Um, but kind of my go-to on a hunt is I don't like to go wider than 24 yep. millimeters. Um, I just don't really like that wide look. Um, and even 24 feels super wide to me. Um, so I like to have a 24 to 70 and then a 35, 50, and then a 70 to 200 or a 100 to 400. Yep. Um, just kind of have that long reach capability. And then sometimes I throw in an 85 or a hundred, um, macro depending on kind of what I'm, I'm feeling. Yep. And then like, if I know there's going to be like a tight bush plane that like I need a specific shot, sometimes I'll bring like 15 to 35 or just a 15 or 14 prime. Um, but yeah, like I, I really, I find myself shooting on like a 35 and then a 50 a lot. Um, and then like, sometimes if I, I'm doing like a horse hunt and weight isn't a huge issue, I run a 24 prime as well. Yep. 
um, to do like nighttime time lapse stuff with that wide 1.4 yeah. um, aperture that comes with the 20 or just a prime in general. Um, and then like the biggest thing is if you're going to be shooting video is having ND filters. Because if you want to shoot, if you want to take advantage of a prime lens that can stop all the way down to 1.2 even. Um, and like if you're shooting video, this is probably more of a beginner thing, but you have like your, your shutter rule. So if you're shooting 24 frames a second, your shutter has to be double what your, or your frame rate has, your shutter speed has to be double what your frame rate is. So I'm shooting 24 frames a second. My shutter speed has to be one over 50. It doesn't have to be exact, but that's kind of what you're doing. Yeah. And so if you're shooting, I, I don't shoot a ton of slow-mo. So if you're shooting um, 24 frames a second and you have your shutter speed at one over 50, that's a lot of light that's being let in the camera as it is because yeah. you're only at one over 50. And then if you want to stop down to 1.8 and let even more light in, you need an ND filter that's basically going to be sunglasses for your camera lens and just blocks on that light coming in. Um, and so I run like Polar Pro ND filters. Um, that's been kind of a big, big help with that. Just constantly, I, I need to be able to do things quickly. Um, and so having a variable ND filter is pretty nice for that too. Yeah, I picked up the Peter McKinnon Polar Pro and I've mm -hmm. had it in my bag for a while. Again, being solo, sometimes I make compromises in quality just cause like I only have so much time and I don't want to stick things. Yeah on and off but it's funny how similar of a lens game mine's just simpler when i i used to only carry one single prime and it was almost like a creative mm -hmm. challenge to me and i did everything mm -hmm. on 24 mil um yeah. and because it was wide enough that i could vlog with it while walking but it was still enough that it would give me like it wasn't fisheye and it wasn't a 14 and and then i was up in the rockies on a solo elk hunt and i was like 80 yards from a caribou for like half an hour. With just the 24. Bro. And like I get home and I can't even see the caribou. I got, yeah. I got nothing. I got red bush. Yeah. That's all. And I'm like, are you? I was like, all right, what, what lens are we already ordering? And so I moved up to the 24 to 70. And at that time, mm -hmm. the Sigma and the first generation G Master were kind of identical, but the Sigma was like a thousand bucks less. So yeah. for the last year, I've been running the Sigma 2470 as my main lens. And then I take a 14 mil because it weighs like 300 grams and for those weird kind of artistic shots, but not mm -hmm. for anything really practical. If it weighed any more, I probably wouldn't bother taking it. But Sony just released their new G Master um, 2470. Yeah. It's, that bums me out. <laughs> it's a nice lens, man. And it came down like 200 grams less than the Sigma lens. So I put my deposit a couple weeks ago and I'm like, yeah. it's supposed to be here mid-June, which will be here before my sheep hunt. So, But I basically do everything on that. Now, what I would love is like that 70 to 200 because what most people don't realize, what long lenses are able to, to help you do is compress the distance visually between your subject and the background. Mm -hmm. And so Foss is the master of this. These like epic dudes hiking on a ridge line with this crazy, you know, cliff behind them that in reality, that cliff looks like it's three miles away. Oh yeah. But because he's zoomed in at 200 mil and he's compressing the shit out of it, it gives you this like, like it's just a beautiful shot. Like, it, and it's such an epic. Mm -hmm. And I would love to be carrying something like that around but there's just no way. And my thing is I do most of my long lens stuff with my spotting scope and phone scope because 
there's just got to be some compromises made. But if I, but if somebody was going to ask me that either 70 to 200 or the 100 to 400, because it's just going to give you such a different look than the 24 to 70, which kind of, if you have to make a compromise, it will give you the ability, but I'm with you on primes, man, because like I seem, even with my 24 or 70, 90% of the time, I'm either 24 or 70. Like, it's weird that you don't, your brain, I think, likes to think in frame sizes, like like predictable composition areas that you're used to, which is I think we see in 35 mil or something like that, which is why yeah, I, think I think it's 35, comparable to like, I think it's 40 millimeters or something. Okay, the, but that's one of the reasons why I think that. that lens is so popular is because it makes things look like we're used to. So for mm-hmm. 50 mil, do you have the new 50 mil 1.2? I do, and it's... uh kind of a giant pain in the ass because it it is so big yeah can i run and grab it please do how big it is yeah so like for comparison and this is what bothers me because primes are so awesome because they used to be so small yeah right but like this is my 24 to 70 yeah and this is my 50 on a camera it's huge yeah like it's giant yeah. And it's frustrating because it's like, ah, like this is the same. It weighs more than my 24 to 70. Yeah. And like, that's a giant prime lens Yeah, to have. It's huge. But like I, I shoot on at 50 millimeters so much that it just has become this like. That's one of the lenses that I'm, almost makes me want to shoot Canon. Like that, the, the buttery shots that people take with that is just insane, man. Like having a 1.2. It's pretty awesome. And the and the um, fact that it's tack sharp, beautiful bokeh, mm-hmm. like it's wild, man. Yeah. I mean, the, the weight is, yeah. like I'll, I'll see my friends, like they'll be shooting on a, a Sony 50. I'm like, oh, that, and that's that the so next, nice. I think that's where we're going next. Like I think with the weight of the 24 to 70, like I don't know how much further we can push the quality, but I think all the next generation of, of lenses People are saying now about the 24 to 70, they don't even know how. There's like 11 uh, aspherical lenses in there. It's got the two XD drives. Like it's insane what's inside that package for it to weigh what it weighs. I think that's where all the innovation is headed over the next few years. It makes me bummed. It's it's interesting. Like Sony is going a very specific direction with their cameras. 100%. And they kind of like all their launch videos are with Renault and Ozturk and Chris Ricard, like all these people are adventure photography yep. filmmakers. And I feel like Sony really cares about that. Like they're trying to make everything small and yep. minimal and compact. And then Canon comes out with this. Yeah. I'm just like, Oh, like what are you doing to me? Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to cut the weight that I'm bringing, not increase it. Um, and so that's like a problem for sure. But um, like I'm running two cameras always, yeah. um, on each shoulder and I've just kind of come to accept the weight sacrifices, I guess. It, you um, got to do it, it in the back country, man. It's the same way I carry a 95 yeah. mil spotter and people are like, what are you doing? And I'm like, okay, yeah, I don't care. I will get stronger yeah. if that's what's required yeah. because like I want the extra light. Maybe I see for an extra five minutes or maybe I can see one more time or maybe I catch an ear flick that I wouldn't have. And it's the same thing as you, man. You carry that gear that's 10% better, even though it's 10 yeah. or 20% heavier. It just extends that creative range for you and enables you to like get a shot you wouldn't have got because your aperture opens up a little bit more or whatever the case may be. Or when you get back home, 
you're a little underexposed, but because you have the 10 bit, you're able to push everything up and your shadows don't blow out. And it's like, yeah, man, it's, but you, you have to decide. And I I think those are all later stage decisions because when it's not your Mm -hmm. career and when your life doesn't depend on it and you haven't decided to like make it your passion hobby, like, like I have, I, I don't think the, like, it's not going to stop you from making shit. You could take your phone. If you had to, no. you'll still yeah, be able the, to make Honestly, shit. the difference between 1.2 and 1.8, like, like I would never in a million years ever recommend that someone who's starting out, get a Canon 50 1.2 prime. Like it just, it just doesn't, it's not applicable. And I don't even know if it's applicable to what I'm doing, but yeah. the reality is like, if I'm bringing two lenses, or I bring two cameras and there's a lens on each always. Yeah. And that just means I only have two lenses in my backpack. Right. Which if I'm not bringing a spotting scope. And you don't carry a weights. weapon, right? Yeah. No. Yeah. So that weight's there. I don't even carry bear spray. Maybe I should, but. Um, <laughs> I'm preaching to the choir, bro. I don't carry either. <laughs> it's all. What are we using for uh, mounting all... devices? Are you cotton carrier guy? Peak designs? Yeah. Cotton carrier. Okay. Um, I think peaks are just they're too finicky for me. Well, the, the, the re- I, the I was a like big down mountains. I was a big fan of Peak, but then I watched Stephen Drake's video mm-hmm. on how he double mounted the tripod adapter mm-hmm. on the cot, and I was like, "Wait a minute, mind yeah. blown, a hundred percent." So now I have yeah. my outdoorsman's uh, tripod stud on the right hand side and the cotton carrier, and I can literally like go from here to my tripod, and it was like that was the last mm-hmm. piece of the puzzle for me because I, for years I was like. I need some way to take this off of here and put it onto there. And with the peak designs, it was just because of the way their clip was designed, it, it ate up. It's too the rest. tight to the camera body. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And cotton nailed that as far as I'm concerned. So mm-hmm. I don't, I wouldn't even, yeah, they're the, they're the best. Yeah. And I just think I like their mounting system better. And the fact that you can buy the chest harnesses and the shoulder straps, and I might be doing mm-hmm. a horse hunt and I'm already thinking of ordering one of those chest straps because if I'm not wearing my backpack when I'm riding a horse, I still want access to my camera and you know all that kind of stuff. Yeah, what I started doing is I have, um, I have camera on each shoulder, and yep. then I'm running like the old Sitka zip up vinyl harness. Yep. But I just fill it with camera gear. Okay. Um, and so like I've scout, I scoured the internet once a week trying to find people that are selling those old vinyl harness. that have like six of them. So That's if anybody hilarious. wants to <laughs> wants to get rid of theirs, I will buy it. Um, but I like, sew a pocket in the back so I can like store stuff Yep. and like it fits two batteries on each side. So I have like, I never have to go into my backpack to get something like on a sheep punt. I don't have to drop my pack on zip it to get my ND filter right. battery or whatever. Um, so that's been super valuable being able to carry both cameras on my shoulder straps and then having that vinyl harness. And then like with cotton carrier, you have that little like side attachment that you can mount it in and i just clip that onto my vinyl harness so if i do drop my pack i have somewhere to put the camera um but yeah i i kind of try to stay away from peak for sure yeah they do some cool stuff and that new tripod they came out with is dope like i think they're an interesting Mm -hmm. company but again i I don't i just don't think they like nailed it for the outdoor space and Mm -hmm. i think cotton carrier did yeah um and it's all personal preference too yeah. Like it'll work. And I ran the peak stuff for a while. I like it. It still does. It still does what it needs, what it like. It, it will, it works. It just, in my opinion, doesn't work as well. Um, okay. We're going to wrap up here with a couple of, um, 
IG questions. This first one I find incredibly hard to answer because I get it all the time. And because I'm a moron who likes to spend $10,000 on a camera body, I have no experience with a budget. Um, Ideal setup for a hunter looking to purchase their first quality camera body and lens. So if you were going to, like, if you're just a, a hunter and that's all you want to do is document your own hunts, yeah, I would actually steer someone towards a Sony RX100 series okay. camera. Yep. Um, that's kind of what I first started doing. And I think that camera for the size and the biggest thing is like, if you're on your own hunt and your camera's in your backpack, you're not going to get like it's it's a it's a waste of weight and space to me like you want your camera out there and accessible and if you're gonna have a big camera on your shoulder strap even that's a pain in the ass so i would actually go with like a sony rx100 iv or b like four or five um and just run that like in your hip belt pouch yeah and the capabilities of that camera is unbelievable for its size now, if you want to like get into like lenses and interchangeable lens mounts and and kind of have more control over your image, I would probably go with like a Sony A6500. Um, that's a really good camera, or like a Canon RP. Um, those are two like smaller body mirrorless cameras um, that still have some pretty incredible capabilities. Um, and then for a lens, I'd probably just go with something that's going to cover like a big range. And I'd probably go with like a 24 to 105 um, because you have that range. It's cheaper, it's smaller. Um, and that's going to be kind of your higher end of that, or just, you know, get a 50. Like um, I would get like whatever body you wanted to get. And then like a fit, the best 50 you could afford. Right. Um, Cause it's small, it's light. And that's kind of the direction I would go with that for sure. I like it. The only thing I'm going to add, and I had to learn this over time is that your glass is more important than your body. 100%. And you will likely upgrade bodies several times, but if you buy the right glass, you're probably going to mm-hmm. keep it. So you're, if you're in that middle of the road where I've got a little bit of money, but not an infinite budget, I would recommend getting, mm-hmm. like, I think the 6,500 is a great choice, but then get really good glass because yeah. you will upgrade yourself into that glass or you're going to be able to sell that glass for an easily 80% of what you paid for it. It holds its value it's so insane. well. And I'd actually encourage people to buy, I buy, buy used glass percent of my stuff used. Yes. Like if you buy it used, you're maybe going to lose 50 bucks on it. If you, yeah. it's uh, expensive, like yep. it's just not, it's a no brainer. Um, and I and think so, it's yeah, almost more I'm, important for the quality of the end product as well. Like I was shooting on decent bodies with kind of shitty glass for the first half of mm-hmm. my kind of artistic career and you're really limited. You get home and everything's got a bit of noise and it's not quite as sharp as you wanted it. (coughs) It's not until you get up to that alpha glass that you're like, holy shit. Like, uh, yeah. So that's, that's the only other, but again, if, if there's nothing like, listen, if you're just starting this, like the, the 6,500 with the kit lens that goes up to one Oh five, like that's going to work. That will get you partying and you will be able to make some super cool shit. But if you're, if you're at that next level where you got a couple bucks, I would, I would get the alpha glass because, mm-hmm. and everything on your camera just works better. Like your autofocus is going to be quicker yeah. and your colors are going to be sharper. And it's like, it was glass made for that camera by those same people. And I think that's a really big deal. 
Mm-hmm. I would agree. <coughs> um, a hunt or trip you have not filmed, but you would like to. Mm. I really want to do like a um, Himalayan like blue sheep hunt. I don't even know what that is. Um, I might not even be. I think it's blue sheep. Yeah, it probably um, is. There's lots of shit yeah, I haven't heard of. Yeti did a film on that several years ago with Cole um, okay. Kramer. Yep. And I've always kind of really been fascinated with like the world outside of hunting. Yeah. Um, and I think that kind of combines like this whole mountaineering aspect of hunting and like the super cool adventure, um, right? Like going to the Himalayas and just the whole process of doing that. Yeah. And the people that you would meet there, I think that would be really, really cool. Um, I think that's probably like up there with something that I really want to yeah. do. Um, but I also think like a doll sheep hunt in Alaska, I just haven't gotten a chance to do that. Yep. Um, and I think there's something special about Alaska and, and sheep in general. Yep. Um, I so agree. I think that would be pretty cool. But I think those would probably be the two. Um, I think like a tur hunt in Azerbaijan would be pretty awesome just because of the landscape there. But um, I also don't know if that's a great part of the world to be going to right now. <laughs> yeah, fair so point. I have, have to wait on that one. Yeah, this has got its own set of challenges. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah, but um, I got to ask it because somebody typed it. Uh, boxers under long johns or no? Uh, yes. All right. I'm a no guy. For sure. Yeah. yeah I go no, see for sure. I'm one or the other. All right. But I also rarely run long johns. Yeah. So. I, I might, this might be one of the years that I actually do because I ran the mountain pants last year and I just found for a sheep hunt, there's some hot days, man. And like the mountain pants yeah. are just too heavy. So I'm going to run the ascents this year and just take the mm-hmm. core lightweights because they weigh like five or six ounces. Like who even That's cares? what I do. And then if I do yeah. wake up and it's crisp, screw it. Throw in the long johns for the morning until noon or whatever. And I got to say, as yeah. a bigger dude, the fit of those Ascent pants, I think those are my, the, my new favorite Sitka pant. Like, they're astonishing. Like, they're just perfect, man. Yeah, I like uh, Ascent's Timberlines. Those are kind of my two favorite pants. I can't do the Timberlines because um, I got big quads. And it, and like, oh, okay. yeah, they don't, I think they fit thinner dudes a little bit, a little mm-hmm. bit better. I like Definitely. them technically. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think they're bomb proof yeah. pants, but. They just don't fit my body very well. Yeah, I find like if I'm wearing like the long Sitka boxers that like go down to almost my knee. Yeah. And then I have socks that come up and boots that come up to like in if I'm wearing gaiters, like yeah. that's up to my if I'm wearing gaiters, that's up to my knee. Yeah. Basically. And I just don't like on an early season sheep hunt, I don't see the need for um long johns really ever. I do bring lightweight bottoms just to have in yeah. case. Do you bring puffy, bring, do you bring like, puffy pants? Yeah, I'd rather bring puffy See, pants. See, this is the thing. So you're either hiking or, and you're too hot for long johns or you stopped yeah. glass and you throw on your puffy pants. And, and that's why yeah. I think for the most part, you don't, if it's not like a late season past November hunt, yeah. I just don't think practically long johns are really required. Again, they're so light. I think it's one of those why not kind of things. But if somebody yeah. put a gun to my head, I think it's one of the things I'd leave at home. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think like the combination of puffy pants and no long johns, like, if I'm moving, yeah, I'm not wearing long johns because no. it's just insane. And yeah. if I'm not moving, I'm immediately putting on puffy pants if it's cold enough. Yeah. If it's not cold enough for puffy pants, I probably don't need long johns. So kind of like cancel yeah. each other out. Did you um, wear any of the Kelvin light insulation this year? 
I did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just yeah. wore it for the first time at the tail end of last year. And I was really surprised, man. I was quite happy with it. Yeah. Like the, the new Kelvin light down. Yeah. The like, yeah. uh, with the yeah. arrow gel or whatever the, whatever's in it. Um, yeah. The new, like the, I'm, I'm a big, um, I, I have so much weight in camera gear. So I try to go to like down over synthetic insulation. Okay. Um, like the Kelvin light down jacket that Sika does and okay. the down, um, bottoms. Like the gotcha. The three-quarter length ones? Yeah. See, the, I've got the three-quarter length, freeze. but then I did do the synthetic upper just because I've had yeah. issues with like um, moisture like drying out, man. I can't. Yeah. And I still do a lot of coastal stuff. And I found, yeah, I'm even, it's funny because I run a down quilt, which I love. Like in my opinion, it is the one of the single best pieces of gear. And in my opinion, if you're not running a quilt, it's because you haven't taken the time to learn how to run a quilt. I think they're so superior to a sleeping bag. I can't even, like I get infuriated having the conversation, but whatever. Because <laughs> it's just something that people say, oh no, quilts don't work. And it's like, Ugh. you just haven't taken the time to learn how to attach it to your sleeping pad. Like they work <laughs> anyways. But I'm almost, I got the synthetic version of my Enlightened Enigma quilt this year, which might be another 10 or 12 ounces, but I'm a huge dry out while you're sleeping guy. Like I get in mm -hmm. soaking wet, fully clothed, yeah. close that some bitch up and like wake up at two o'clock in the morning, sweating and dry. And, but the down quilt, it can only do handle so much. Whereas if it's in winter and I'm running like my Kafaru slick bag, it's like an oven in there. And so this year I was yeah. thinking for the sheep hunt, I know it's an extra 10 ounces, but if I do run into a week of rain, it would certainly be nice to get into that synthetic bag at night yeah there's pros and cons of both like i i kind of try to go as minimal as possible on everything yeah. that is in camera gear because yeah. i'm carrying so much of it um like my sleeping bag of like a marmot um i'm still in imperial units because i haven't quite fully converted Sorry. <laughs> um but i'm like a marmot 20 degree yep. down bag and it weighs like a pound six ounces yeah. ounces which is like the lightest sleeping bag i've one of the lightest i've been able to find that's crazy it is down and so i am i used to be like that right like i would if my pants were soaking wet i would just get in wet into yeah. my sleeping bag and then cook everything dry which really is the best system like that's the best way to do it um and now i just kind of have taken being a little bit more miserable right with not getting my sleeping bag soaking wet yeah because it is down and if i do that too often by the end of a 10 day hunt, I don't really have a sleeping bag that retains warmth. Yeah. And that's more important to me. Like having a sleeping bag that is dry, it's more important to me than having dry clothes every morning. The um, funny thing is too, if you're going to get up and be wet in the first 10 minutes anyways, cause everything's wet yeah. from the night before there's an argument, like yeah. why are we, there's no perfect system, man, at all. And part of mm -hmm. it, because of my YouTube channel and the gear reviews, I'm just doing shit because I like I like the chance to talk about it. And if I ran something one year, I want to run something different next year so I can actually give an educated opinion on, you know, the pros and yeah. cons of that. I also don't like the idea of being married to one system or another. Like, mm -hmm. I think I would probably, if I'm going to take my synthetic bag, I will likely take my pure down puffy jacket and pants. Yeah. Because then that way I don't have to rely on those to wear me out. And if I have to, I can wear them in my synthetic bag. And if I take my down bag, I would likely take my synthetic jacket because then, you know, mm -hmm. I can let these two things kind of play off of each other. Yeah. I've been also trying to like balance survivability of my camera gear. And right. if it's like soaking wet for 10 days and I'm bringing all this, these clothes into my tent to try and dry them out, 
I'm introducing all this moisture and condensation into the air where my cameras are as well. Yeah. And I just like, if it's pissing rain for 10 days straight, the cameras are already like in rough shape. Yeah. And like this year I dropped one in a river, like they're constantly being like moisture is constantly being thrown at them while they're out. And then like, I feel like I like to have them in a place for the night where they're not getting bombarded with moisture. I think that's a great point. And so and the amount of condensation more, that gets in oh, there when you crazy. climb in there wet, it's out of control, man. Like it turns into a mini rainforest in there. Yeah. And I'm running like a Hilbert Enon, which is like the smallest, yeah. lightest tent possible. And it's just like soaking wet all the time. And I've just started like leaving my wet clothes in my vestibule, deal with it in the morning. I'm yep. probably going to be wet tomorrow anyways. If it's not like, if it's a nice day out, they're going to dry by 12 yep. a.m or 12 PM. Sorry. And, uh, yeah, I'm just dealing with being a little bit more comfortable, but knowing that my gear, my electronics are going to be working the next day is, is pretty important. For me. I like that. I was on my goat hunt and the second day I was still on my a seven three and I went to open it up and the screen was black and I just had a panic moment. So I basically just put it away, filmed the entire yeah. hunt on two GoPros and like no one knows yeah. people watch that film. They're like, this looks amazing. And then I'm like, oh, that's two GoPros. Um, <laughs> And it shows you what you can do when you know what you're doing too. Cause like GoPros are so light dependent. Like if you feed them enough light, they will take mm-hmm. nice footage for you. But if you light starve them, it looks like pixelated garbage. Anyways, mm-hmm. it took me until that whole trip. And then I was finally in a hotel, opened it up, still black, leave everything out overnight, open everything up next morning, still black. And I'm heartbroken, right? Didn't went in insure mm-hmm. it, nothing. And then I put it back together and I turn it on and I'm, I'm looking through the viewfinder and I can like see things in the viewfinder. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? And I hit the button that switches. Oh, it. you had the, uh, yeah. <laughs> like the shortcut button to shut the view, yeah, to I've shut the, the screen off. And I was like, Oh yeah. my God, you didn't use it a camera yeah. for the entire week. Cause you shut the screen off. You moron. Yeah. Oh, there's been times where I like, uh, like you have your stabilization yeah. in your cameras. And like we're in the NWT this year and like going down a super sketchy, like rock face and we're like rock sliding everywhere. And I'm trying to get it. And I keep like getting this alarm thing on my camera screen. That's saying like my IBIS is off. My stabilization is off. Okay. When you're running a really tiny camera with no stabilization, like it's pretty obvious if you're not in a situation where you can stabilize right. it. Yeah. And it's just like shaky or like the shakiest footage ever. I'm like, what is going on? Like having a, basically a meltdown on the side of the mountain. Cause I'm like, my camera's broken. Like this is day one of this hunt. And, uh, and then I just like, after 10 minutes of losing my mind, I looked over and like the, the switch yeah. on the side of here was just like off. I've done and that with my aperture with lock. <laughs> just, like yeah. I have my aperture set like manually on the lens and I'm twisting. I'm like, Oh, what's going on? Why won't my aperture? And then it's like, like, I don't know how many times I got to do something like that before. It's like, just yeah. look on the lens, man. And then you switch it back to yeah. auto and everything's back to fine. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah do you use insurance product of any kind? I do. I think they're probably not very happy with me after this last year. Um, they told me they're going to, I don't know if I, yeah, I can talk about this. Why not? Um, they told me they're going to drop me. Really? And then, and then, yeah. And then like they said, I was too high risk. Yep. Um, I had two different claims, like high, high amounts this yeah. last year. And then, uh, and then they just renewed me again. I'm like, Oh, oh maybe I use one called a Mac warranty. Do you know that one? No. So they're a, like a third party provider. My a one, I think was seven fifty for three years. 
And it's like mm-hmm. probably the same one you got, like no fault, no nothing. I could drive over thing with a truck. Nobody gives a shit. If they can't fix it, mm-hmm. you get a new camera. And if they can fix it, and I think there's a $50 fee. Okay. No matter yeah. what. Um, and they're out of New York and they are, sorry, New Jersey. And they warranty like an unbelievable amount of, of, um, you have to buy it when at the point of sale, when you buy your yeah. new camera. And like I say there, and it's MAC, but if you're ever in the need for a new insurance provider, they came recommended to me. I can't remember by who, but it was some outdoor guy. I uh, might've been Snyder. Um, and I've never had to deal with them, but people are like, what, why are you filming in the back country with an A1? And I'm like, I don't give a shit. Like, because I want <laughs> 350 bucks. For I, it. Yeah. 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 If I break it, it, you know what I mean? They'll give me a new one. Um, yeah. I've kind of tried to do that. Like I've been going too pronged with it now where, because I, I just want to maintain an insurance company that's going to keep me. Yeah. Um, cause I'm on like my third one now. Um, that's hilarious. Is, oh, it's bad. So like I've had an insurance company, that's your standard insurance company, right? Like you pay a monthly or an annual premium and then you have your yep. deductible if something happens. Um, but I started just like when I buy new gear doing that, like three or five year, yep. just no fault warranty that you buy when you yep. purchase your gear. And then I have like my underlying, like, I don't know what it, I think it's like 20 grand of, of gear insurance. So like if my whole Pelican falls out of a beaver into the lake right? or like all of my camera your gear car gets broken or into like or that. something like that. Yeah. Like yeah. something like that, like something disastrous will cover that. And then. So there's peace of mind there, but yeah, like all the new pieces of gear I bought, I bought that underlying yeah. warranty. Cause it's, if I have a $2,000 lens shit the bed, like it's not worth, it's almost not worth the hassle of going no. to insurance and like paying the $500 deductible. And then that is a ding on my insurance and then they might drop me. And it's just at this point. And I think they've got to the anymore. point now where they've run the numbers so well that it's like a no brainer. I think once you get up yeah. into that, alpha series, full frame bodies and lenses, like you're paying mm-hmm. so much that it's just, and especially if you do what we do, like if you're taking wedding photographs, I mean, fuck it. As long as you have house insurance yeah. in case your car gets broken into, I don't think you're going to drop a body. You know what I mean? Yeah. But if you're doing this stuff, like we are like planes and rafts and hiking and like, mm-hmm. and even the dust and everything else, like, I think it only makes sense, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Okay. So just before we wrap up, what's the plans for the year? Like I'm assuming you guys are kind of like probably starting to go through prep, like seasons a couple months away, man. Yeah. That's kind of what I've been spending the last, um, couple months on continuing to to put out video content on our end, but yeah, just kind of having an overall plan of of what this year looks like. Um, nothing crazy different. Yep. Um, I think like from the backcountry BC and beyond end of things, we're going to try and dive into a little bit more of like the characters and, and yep. some deeper things on, on what goes on there. Um, just to kind of continue to push forward the content that, that we're putting out, but yeah, still lots of, of hunting stuff and, um, hopefully going to have maybe even more, more stuff coming down the pipe, but any yeah, big releases left thing. for this year from last year's content. Yeah. Um, hoping for next week we'll probably do um kind of a three episode um series i say next week it's tentative so no one come yelling if it's not out yet um but uh yeah we'll uh we'll have probably three videos from a caribou hunt i did with dustin and then another guy harrison yeah um and so we'll be doing that and then i was on a, a lake hunt 
um, at the end of the year um, where we went moose hunting. And so there will be one of those. And then kind of like an end of season wrap up video, kind of closing the season, picking up all the horse crews and then a November goat hunt. So that's kind of what's left on our docket as far as content um, from backcountry BC and beyond. Dude, your data management then, must be wild. Oh, it's a nightmare. Like, <laughs> at this point, the amount of cards and data and backups. Oh, and, yeah. Holy shit, man. I think I walked away from last season with 19 terabytes. Oh my God. Which is just, it's insane. And how like, many cards are you taking on a cameras. given hunt? And are I'm you running, CF Express or SD? Yeah, I have to run CF Express on these cannons. Oh my God. Um, I don't even want to know what wanna, you've got invested in CF Express cards, man. It's an, it's crazy. I'm like looking at my yeah. cards over there. So I have about two terabytes of CF Express cards, okay. which is a giant money investment on its huge, own huge but that's more than most can't. people's frame like body yeah. sorry body yeah oh yeah like i have i have a bot like an r5 sunk in just cf express cards yeah 100 um, but that allows me to shoot that higher end video yeah. all like 4k 120 frame rates yeah. and 10 bit i can even shoot 12 bit raw on this if i wanted to yeah 8k um and that allows me to have that flexibility and then if, if something were to happen, like, oh, Nick, like the plane's not coming for three more days. Yeah. I'm not like rationing footage. I yeah. even do with two terabytes sometimes. Um, wow. But um, yeah, and that's not even writing the two oh. cards. So I'm filling two terabytes on a hunt of just footage. Um, and then I have SD cards for photos. And that's kind of how I manage that on the cannons. Oh, okay. Like one, one card goes to video, one card goes to photo. Cool. Kind of sketchy. There's not a backup of the two. Yeah. Like knock on wood. I, I never lost a card, yet, man. But, I, I know a lot of yeah. people like Nick Treehearn is like super obsessive about double cards. Stephen Drake is super yeah. obsessive about double cards. And I've, and again, I don't do this for a profession. So like the only buddy I'm going to piss off if I lose some stuff is me. So maybe I would do mm -hmm. it differently, but I've literally never, I just last year switched over to all Sony tough cards. So I am yeah. SD cards, but they doubled the cost. Like I think I'm 300 bucks for 128 gig. Yeah. So it's not cheap either. Um, but I yeah. don't have to carry the, the, uh, the amount of like, if I end up with two or like even three or four hours of filmed footage by the end of a 10 day solo hunt, that's a lot where I, I bet, like two days for yeah, me. <laughs> I'm sure you get way. And part of that is opportunity. Like when I actually got to go a sheep hunt last year with two guys, it was yeah. so nice to be able to like, film other people and take photographs yeah. like it's just you can only film yourself like so many ways oh, yeah. do you know what i mean like, well, yeah what are you gonna do <laughs> I, yeah and yeah. i i kind of have this like philosophical objection to the walk ahead put the camera walk back like i love remy warren but like dude i know you just walked up there and put the camera there like yeah, suspension of disbelief sacrifices. has been suspended do you know what i'm saying like you took me out of the story because you did that because how the mm -hmm. fuck else did that camera get there? You're by yourself. Mm -hmm. So uh, because I don't do stuff like that, it, it even limits it even more. Yeah. There's it's, it's a tough game filming yourself. You kind of either have to, you have just have to make the decisions on what you're doing. Yep. Um, and whether that's, you're going to run ahead and set up tripods to get a different angle, or you're just going to strictly film yourself. Like, I, I don't know if there's a wrong way to do it, but it's just like it, you, you're so limited on what you're able to do. I've gotten um, better and I've got a lot better with GoPros because what I, one of the yeah. biggest learnings I got is I took a mountain bike handlebar GoPro mount and I attached it 
to my end of my trekking pole. And then I can fully extend my trekking pole. And like, if I hold it at the right angle, my arms not in the shot. And I actually get Mm -hmm. this, like, it looks like there's a dude standing almost seven or eight feet behind me with a camera. Mm -hmm. Um, And depending on the angle I'm walking, I can get some really cool transitional footage that way where you'll get like, I'll be on a crazy ridge line and you'll have the earth dropping away beside me and the big cliff off in the distance. And, but it's all just experimenting. And I do a lot of head mount GoPro stuff. One of my big, I always carry two GoPros and one is usually either mounted on a head strap on my head or on the trekking pole. And then the second one I have on a Joby gorilla pod with the little bendable legs. Because then when I get anywhere, like, oh, I'm going to do a tent setup, I just wrap that around a couple branches, get a little time-lapse footage, or if I'm glassing, I can go set it up on some rocks and get some time-lapse footage of me glassing. And I think that's the secret with with filming yourself is have a couple different tools at your disposal so you can, and especially with those GoPros, you don't care about them as much. Like if it's going to rain, fuck it, set it out. You get some footage. It looks good. Great. If you don't also not a big deal. If you're walking through the snow and you got it on your head, who cares? It's going to be fine. Um, whereas like, it's a little bit different when you start talking about like those big bodies, they're not, they're durable, but they're not that durable. (laughs) No. No. I, uh, I dropped, uh, I went for a swim with uh both my cameras mounted to my shoulder straps last year oh my god and uh drowned two lenses but the body survived somehow like i full submersion in a river with the cameras on my shoulder strap like my 7200 had standing water in it like i could do this and like water was like it was bad um and somehow like the canon both canon bodies made it out fine um but that's a testament bro yeah, I was, I'm still kind of surprised. I'm like waiting for maybe there to be some internal damage and on the middle of a hunt, it's just going to be- Just dies. Be dead, but yeah. Um, yeah, so far so good. I think the big thing is if if that happens is to pull out the battery and not connect it to power until you're so confident that it dries because water in itself isn't necessarily right. bad, but water combined with power is what's going to ruin. And um, I think that need, did I break it? And people want to turn it on- like, yeah, oh, it's fine. It's fine. And it's like, if you can stop yeah. your, that's like, even though it was like in my own head, the moment I took mm-hmm. my A1 out and saw that black screen, I was like, yeah. we're done for the trip. It just, yeah. it went in the camera case, got locked up, went in the backpack and I never touched it again until, yeah. until it was done. I was lucky. I was on a horseback hunt. So I had a third camera body, but I literally like everything that was wet went into uh panga and yeah. got zipped up. And was not turned on. Batteries are pulled out. I didn't even try to turn on to test it. Like batteries got pulled out. All power disconnected. Went into a waterproof bag and sat there until four or five days later. And then I, on top of that, I let it sit for two more days, like in the sun, before I even connected to a temp power. So that's like a big thing with that is yeah, power and water is is what caused those problems. Recipe mostly. for disaster. Yeah. Listen, man, I really want to appreciate you taking the time. That was super interesting. Yeah. I'm super keen on the rest of the content and seeing what you, I'm sure you're only going to level it up between last year and next year. And I wish the whole crew of, of guys and girls up there, I love watching the videos and I love what Dustin's building and all the different characters and stuff that are, that are up there. So good on you, man. And mm-hmm. like I say, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Um, for anybody who's interested, Nick's Instagram, 
Backcountry BC and Beyond's Instagram, their website. Anything else you want me to include in the show notes? Do you got a website itself or is it just your IG? You do I do have a website. Through? Yeah. Okay. Um, but you can throw that in there. I can send you a Perfect. link to it. Yep. Yeah. Um, that'll all be in the show notes. And if you're not following Nick already, I highly recommend it. Super, super great photos, videos, the whole nine yards. Awesome. Okay. Everybody else appreciate you guys taking the time. If you could take a moment to like, comment, share, subscribe, it's always greatly appreciated. Kind of help push things up in the algorithm. And as always, thanks for tuning in. All right. Catch you later, Nick. Sweet. Thanks. Appreciate it. You bet, man.